Hey, welcome to episode 14. So, did you know that every 62 minutes, somebody dies from an eating disorder? It's a tragic number, right? And did you know that some people that make extremely healthy lifestyle choices or live extremely healthy diets can actually be covering up some serious mental health problems? These super complex topics are what we discussed today with entrepreneur and psychologist Steph Giorgio, and you might know her as the Mel Brunch Queen. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? I hope you've had a great week. And before I jump into today's interview, I just want to do a big shout out and thank you to everyone that has listened to any any or all of the episodes of the show because we've just hit 1,000 downloads. And that's just after four weeks on the air. So I'm just quietly, I'm pretty happy with that result. Anyway, I'm here with a very good friend of mine, and many of you Aussies might know her from Instagram, but she is Stephanie Giorgio. She is an entrepreneur and psychologist, and you might know her better as the Melbourne Brunch Queen, and she specializes uh, with her psychology in the areas of nutrition and eating disorders, which, as you can imagine, interests me greatly. So I'm really excited to have this chat today and share it with you. So I'd like you to meet Stephanie Giorgio. Welcome to the show, Steph. How are you doing? Hi, Maddie. Thank you for having me. I'm very well today. Obviously, we went out for brunch before this podcast. I'm full of energy and really excited to have this chat. I'm excited too. Brunch was amazing, by the way. Shout out to Turquoise Eatery. Yes, it was unbelievable. Lots of juices and coffee and healthy options. So if you're looking for a new cafe, Turquoise Eatery was amazing. And of course, we ate We ate healthy. We ate healthy. Yes, we did, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I guess I want to start by jumping in for the listeners to give a bit of background on who you are, sort of share a bit of information for those that don't know you from Instagram. And for those that do know you from Instagram, a bit of background that maybe they don't know about how you got to where you are, what you've been through, your, your psychological journey, becoming a psychologist, and just where you went from start to, to where you are today. Yeah. Okay. Well, basically, I've always had a keen interest in psychology. So in year 11, I was just drawn to the subject and I just found it incredibly fascinating. So I always knew I wanted to be a psychologist. And I guess on the side, I was always into health and fitness. And, you know, in my teenage years, there was obviously a lot of pressure around looking a certain way and, you know, fitting in with everyone. And I had these dreams of, you know, being a model or a singer or a dancer. And I guess what sparked my interest in the area of eating disorders is, um, as you know, I went through an eating disorder myself. So when I was 15, I was approached by a modeling agency who wanted to take photos of me. And in a photo shoot of me in a bikini, the photographer sort of moved away from the camera and just looked at me up and down and said, did you eat before you came? Because you look really bloated. And I was just like this young girl. And I was like, yeah, I had a sandwich. And I was, from that moment onwards, I was shocked. I was just like, that's it. I'm cutting out bread. I'm cutting out sugar. I'm cutting out, you know, dairy. And that is when the restriction of certain food groups began. And that was the start of my eating disorder. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So, so you, it sounds like you got the, the the goal of becoming a you know a model was like was actually happening. You had that that dream, which seemed like a childhood dream, and mm-hmm. then it ha- happened. And then 
it it defined maybe how, how long, like the next five, ten years of your life with that one comment from a photographer. Yeah, absolutely. So the eating disorder itself actually went on for nine years on and off. Wow. Yeah. It's and a the, long time. Exactly. And, and I guess the reason it went on for so long was because while I – had it going. I was highly functioning. I was running my own business. I was doing an honors degree and I was relatively a healthy weight and I maintained a healthy lifestyle. So no one really knew what was going on behind closed doors. And I guess you were so distracted with the the chaos of your own life that you did, didn't really particularly have some time to acknowledge what was going on or even really be able to interact with it. Yeah, that's exactly right. It just sort of became a function and it was almost um, part of just a mental cycle of, you know, restricting, that's it today, I'm going to eat really healthy, I'm just going to have salads. And then you know, binging on a food, feeling guilty, engaging in a bulimic cycle and being stuck in this food jail. Food jail? Mm. What do you mean by food jail? Can you go into a bit of depth with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So food jail is a term, I guess, used by people or who can relate who are in a cycle with food and fitness and wanting to change their body. But it's almost like they're in a battle, you know, they want to eat chocolate, but they're like, no, health goals need to be fit and healthy. And then they end up binging on chocolate. And then they're like, that's it tomorrow. I'm going to be restrictive and I'm not going to eat carbs. I'm going to do this and that. And it's such a mental battle that your mind is behind bars and food almost becomes a burden that you have to think about and deal with. And it feels like jail that you are stuck behind this barrier and it's really complicated to get out of. And it like dictates every variable of your life, I could imagine. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, your your social life becomes controlled by it, um, how you respond to friends and family, where you choose to eat, what you choose to eat, how you choose to do all that. And it's really restrictive and, and quite emotionally draining as well. There's a lot of emotional uh, impacts as a result of being in food jail. Yeah, it's, I can imagine that living that way would bleed into so many other areas of your life and cause similar problems in, in different facets. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely remember, you know, not going to social events because I didn't want to think about the stress of eating or I wanted to eat well. But you end up staying home and, and binging anyway because you're lonely. So it just was a double-edged sword and the impact is ex- extreme exhaustion, um, you know, that tiredness, not being able to engage. So I'd be present or I'd be here and mum's like, Steph, it's like your mind is elsewhere. You've lost that shine. You've lost that sparkle. And and that's for me was like, wow, if, you know, people are saying that and noticing that I need to do something. So so you said 15 years of age, right? It sort Mm. of began where that comment was made and you said nine years. So where in that nine-year journey did you begin to, I guess, start investigating what was going on? Was it from that comment from your mum or, you know, what age were you or how far into the eating disorder were you able to identify that firstly it was an eating disorder and what to do about it? Yeah, really good question. Look, I always knew I had this problem but I just denied the severity of it because, like I said, I was functioning, I was managing. So I was like, whatever, this is a part of my life. I just need to work around it and deal with it. So it was almost like the eating disorder was there and my life worked around it. And it wasn't until I was about 22 that maybe I sought help because it got to the point where I was, it was really affecting my life. And I remember driving home exhausted and I was actually on the wrong side of the road and these cars were beeping at me and I was just like, well, what's happening? I was just out of it. And then I realized I was on the wrong side of the road. Luckily, I was okay, but I was like, no, 
this needs to stop. How am I going to help people as a psychologist if I've got this and if I'm not even helping myself? So that's when I reached out. I went and saw a psychologist because back then we didn't have headspace or mental health wasn't as well recognised. So I sort of did do it on my own and and did get some support with it. Yeah, that's great. And I think we were talking about this before at brunch and, you know, like 10 to 15 years ago and anything before then, mental health was something to be buried, something to be ignored, something to not engage with. So, you know, I guess Mm. people need to remember that, you know, you're sort of talking about things from a time before like now, which is when mental health, everyone's so open about it. Apps exist, meditation's well known about. Not saying that the answers are, are everywhere, but for everyone, but you know, we're able to have a comfortable conversation about it, which is, I guess, why you're here on the podcast, right? It's becoming a normal part of society. So, mm. yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So, in regards to, so your, your eating disorder developed, I guess, on the basis fundamentally from that one comment. And then it grew from there. But for for other people or different different types away from a psycho speaking as a psychologist, mm. how do eating uh, disorders develop? Yeah, really good question. And it is there are so many different, I guess, causes. And I think upbringing is a big one. I know when I was growing up, it was the low fat movement, and I had friends come over and they're like, "Why is everything in your fridge low fat?" And I'm like. I don't actually know. And that's how I learned through my mom. Like she would eat those foods and I thought it was normal to eat low fat. Um, And also, yeah, just upbringing. I think mothers with eating or conscious weight comments, it really does flow onto children and they grow up thinking that's normal. Um, So I think being really conscious about what you say around kids is something to really consider. Also, you know, the whole nature nurture, who you hang around and social media now, you know, a lot of my clients come in and they see all these pictures on Instagram and they don't really understand that a lot of it's airbrushed. And a lot of my work is psychoeducation around, hey, actually look at this video where it, you know, tears apart a model about how much editing is actually done and what's made to what is done to make this person look that way and it's just changed back in my day we had msn chat and i remember those days yeah yeah and there was no social media so now i think the risk of developing you know unhealthy eating patterns has significantly increased and i think social media is definitely a um starting point for a lot of people's um, concerns about their weight and image. I totally agree with you there. And I've got a lot of friends in the health and fitness and wellness space, as you can imagine. And I've got a a lot of friends that are PTs and nutritionists that have literally had clients come to them with with their Instagram open saying, I want to look like this. And my mate Danny Kennedy on the Fitness and Lifestyle podcast, he addressed this in a podcast of his that I listened to this week. And, you know, people are different. They have different genetics. They have different lifestyles. Their body holds fat differently. Their body might hold muscle differently. And people are just comparing themselves to this. This, you know, one telescopic view of of an Instagrammer's life and comparing their entire life to this one version of this other person. So it's, I think it's super unhealthy. Mm, absolutely, and I also part of my work is working with personal trainers and people in the fitness industry and educating them on how to identify these red flags. Like, how do you know someone doesn't have an eating disorder, and and what do you look out for? Because I think a lot of eating disorders these days are masked under, you know, I'm keto or paleo or vegan. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I I support those types of diets. However, they can often be used as a way to maintain unhealthy eating patterns. So, for example, there is a um, disorder. It's not actually in the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders yet, which is what we use to diagnose people. Um, It's called orthorexia and it's the eating disorder of preoccupation with just eating clean 24-7. 
So it's hyper-restrictive. Hyper-restrictive, no flexibility, a lot of guilt if you stray from that uh, diet. And I believe it's becoming more prominent in today's society, but also more masked because this whole fitness trend is just so huge on social media right now. Yeah, I totally agree that it's being masked and people are using what publicly is being accepted as a positive movement to mask maybe their more private negative realities, which, you know, everybody has their ups and downs and it's it's human to experience that. But masking is one method of one way of not dealing, right? And I, I assume your advice would be that dealing with the negatives in your life is a, is a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, everything has an underlying cause and underlying um, concern and it's not just about the food you eat and the exercise you do. It's about the thoughts you say to yourself. You know, it's not the donut making you fat. It's the belief that this donut is going to make me fat and I failed and therefore I'm going to binge. So it's the whole thought process that underlies your behavior that really dictates, you know, the direction you're taking. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Absolutely. So when we when we sort of say the title of eating disorders, I guess most people that maybe not have not engaged with that before would would just assume sort of we're talking overeating, with, you know, resulting in being overweight or obesity or the likes of bulimia and anorexia. They're the ones that they're the sort of ones that often make the news and, and headlines. But as a as a person that works with these types of issues and uh, people that experience them, what are different types of eating uh, eating disorders that we might come across in ourselves or other people, and and how do how are they characterized or how do we identify them? Yeah, really good question. And on that note, the diagnostic criteria has actually changed over the years because it was a lot more, um, I guess, you had to really meet a certain set of criteria to be diagnosed, but now it's more broad. So the frequency of, of binging is is less to be meeting a diagnosis of bulimia, for example. And with anorexia, in order to meet a diagnosis, you used to have to experience amenorrhea, which is the loss of your period. But now you don't need to experience that to meet the criteria of anorexia. So bulimia and anorexia, I guess, are the two mainstream eating disorders, uh, both characterized by restriction and bulimia obviously 
a form of purging, so either, you know, vomiting, laxatives, excessive exercise. But the reason, I guess, bulimia does go under the radar is because these individuals present as, you know, average weight and they also live quite functioning lives. So it is a more trickier one to diagnose, whereas anorexia is also a medical condition. So if someone does come in with a BMI um, under a certain range, you do have to work with a doctor because it is very serious uh, because these people are malnourished. They require a team of support and only one in three people do recover from anorexia, which is quite unfortunate. That is really unfortunate. And Mm. alongside, obviously, the catastrophic psychological effects that it can have, it's obviously got its biological impacts. As you said, it's a medical condition. And, you know, for people that are vomiting on on a frequent basis, you can, your stomach acid can burn holes in your esophagus. You Mm -hmm. can have, you know, pH problems throughout your, your gut and intestines, which cause all sorts of even if you do you are one of the lucky ones to be able to get over it psychologically there are there are a potential array of physical effects that might last a long time mm, absolutely there is a lot of psychological and biological impacts and again i guess some people may not see them so they think it's okay to continue but there is a build up of that that can come out over time yeah absolutely so i guess for people that um well, I guess for all of us, how or what could we use to identify or spot in our everyday life family or friends or even maybe ourselves that are mm. uh, entering into an eating disorder phase or in an eating disorder phase? Like, what would we look for? Yeah, that's such a good question because, you know, individuals with eating disorders, it is one of the hardest things to bring up with people because they think you're just trying to make them fat or they think you don't have their best interests at heart. And I guess some red flags to look out for if you are concerned for someone or a family member is, you know, secrecy. Are they eating in secret? Are they avoiding certain foods? Are they avoiding social events? Is there a change in their mood recently? Is there a change in their body weight? Um, Are they obsessed with talking about food? Is that something that's sort of always on their mind, something they're preoccupied with. Uh, If you're living with someone, are you finding wrappers everywhere or food hidden in places you didn't think it would be? And, you know, not turning a blind eye because it is one of those tricky topics that if you just don't say anything, it does continue. And you can feel like you're totally invading somebody when you bring that type of thing up and inherently the reaction is likely to be someone that feels very invaded. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I guess be prepared that the person may be defensive or not ready to um, address their problems, but having someone else raise it with them like, hey, I'm actually really concerned gives them that second voice that something's not right and you need some support. And I know for me, I was in denial many, many years. I didn't want to tell anyone about it. And I guess the way I got over it or, you know, made it through was that I created a life where the eating disorder couldn't exist. So before that, it was I created a life with the eating disorder and I worked around it. But then I started to create a life where there was no time for it, where, you know, if I went out and ate I drank alcohol or I ate something that, you know, was a forbidden food. I just dealt with that. 
Yeah, right. I actually have a similar conversation to a lesser degree with uh, the clients that I deal with in that, you know, a lot of their, a lot of the people I deal with are trying to lose weight. And the reality is their life that they've constructed supports that behavior. And, and not only that, but a lot of the reasons that that behavior began in the first place is often just like sort of yourself, you know, it started when you were 15. There's often a, an underlying cause that started many, many years before. So reconstructing the life in a manner, yeah, exactly what you said is what I encourage my clients to do so that we can change to a healthier lifestyle. Mm, absolutely. Every behavior serves a function and it's about identifying what is the function of that behavior. Is it combating loneliness? Is it combating isolation? Is it making you feel connection? What is it? And digging deeper because a lot of it is symptom symptomatic. So the binging or the eating is a symptom of something deeper. So you need to address the cause, not just the behavior. So I guess inherently at the minute we've talked about the sort of more more negative ones and what I mean by that is addressing orthorexia which you mentioned before mm. and that's the idea of living extremely healthy and sort of using that as a positive mask like so what what would we look out for because that's becoming more and more common with you know the health tre- trend and the, the um, fitness trend that we've got going on on Instagram what everybody wanting to look photoshopped every minute of their life um, so how would you uh, identify or approach someone that you think's in the orthorexia phase or entering into that mm-hmm. yeah really good question because they're going to justify it as like I'm being healthy like this is what are you talking to me about this? I'm living a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, and I think that is an excellent example. Defensiveness, you know, almost acting as though they're being attacked and inflexibility is a big one. So if one day, you know, they miss a meal or they're forced to have, you know, a milk that's not almond milk or something like that and they fly off the handle or their reactions are very strong, that is usually an indicator. So inflexibility, you know, not being able to stray off routine, not being able to be adaptable and having a a severe impact from it. And any disorder, it needs to uh, impact your daily functioning. So if any sort of issue around food is impacting your ability to function on a day-to-day basis, that's when it's potentially considered a problem. Yeah. And and I guess, so we're obviously talking about interacting with these people that potentially have this who are likely to be defensive or likely to be offended or invaded. So is your advice then for the, to, to either advise them or for individuals listening that are experiencing them th- themselves and don't want to talk to anybody they know, is it to, to talk to a counsellor or a psych? Is that the next step? Yeah, absolutely. If you know, it is impacting your mood and your relationships. It definitely is worth just reaching out and speaking to someone about it and just asking yourself, is this effective for me? Is this lifestyle I've chosen, is it helping me or is it harming me? And, you know, deciding the way you want to live your life. And if it's not working for you and you're not feeling optimally happy, then absolutely decide to do something about it and get that support. It's not easy, but it certainly is worth it in the end. I think the most important thing of what you just said is the word me. And like everybody is an individual. Their journey is different. Comparing it to Instagram or comparing it to someone you look up to at school or at uni or at work like is is an ineffective method or path because your, your path is unique to you, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, cool. So, um, my next question is pretty much, we've talked about some amazing health stuff, but I want to acknowledge, because a lot of people, I find this when I talk to people, a lot of people don't know this or they're unaware, and I really want to talk to a psychologist about it, Mm. and it's just the notion that... 
every psychologist is different and that we we relate to a different psychologist differently. So I've had friends and friends and family and clients as well that have gone to see a psychologist and they're like, ah, seeing a psychologist doesn't work. Like, nah, I tried it. But I think it's really important to talk about the idea that you interact with every psychologist differently and how to find the right one for you. Yeah, absolutely. There definitely is a mixed bag out there, not going to lie. (laughs) Um, And I think it's important, you know, therapeutic outcomes. So, you know, the successfulness of um, treatment really is 80% dependent on the therapeutic alliance. So it is so important to find someone that you connect with and that you feel comfortable with. And if you don't, don't be turned off. Just, you know, accept that it didn't really work out, but don't give up on trying to find someone. I really encourage people to do their research, find someone online who looks suitable. And then when you go to your doctor, tell them that you want to be referred to that psychologist. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I, I've had that experience myself as well, like mm. sort of talking to people that have had similar issues or whatnot and saying, how did you find that psychologist? Who do you recommend? And then going to the doctor and saying, this is the person I need to see. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think too many people have, you know, they might, even seeing a psychologist might be just them stepping outside their box enough that if they have one bad experience, they're straight back into their box. They're not dealing with their issues because psychology doesn't work. But it's it's important to understand that, yeah, everybody's different. And they have a different method and you connect with them differently differently. You feel comfortable with different people. So yeah, I think that's totally, totally on point and great advice. So I think all the all this information is super useful. And I think absolutely everybody's going to benefit in some way or be able to relate to some point in their life where they maybe have felt that way or whatnot. But we Time flies, right? We're wrapping up already. Um, but where can everybody find you online? Yeah, good question. So I'm on Instagram as Mel Brunch Queen. So it's Melb Brunch Queen. So people think my name is Mel, but it's not. And just on that note, I love food and I love brunching. And that's what inspired me to you know, take this path because I started posting food and noticed a positive reaction and slowly built up a following on Instagram and this almost became part of my acceptance that it's actually okay to eat pancakes and Nutella and all those foods. So my approach now is I maintain a healthy lifestyle, but if I want Nutella or if I want waffles or, you know, something sweet, it's not the end of the world. And I actually, that's when my body changed, when I stopped when I let go of all these preconceived beliefs, like, oh, you need meat six times a day and you need 120 grams of protein and, oh, I've got to measure my macros. And I'm not putting that down at all. They're great tools and great learning opportunities for people. But sometimes you've just got to relax and just... As long as you're not obsessed with them, right? Exactly. And just maintain a healthy lifestyle and eat a little bit here, eat a little bit there. And I'm better off and I'm more happy now. I just... And it makes me more inclined to eat healthy when I'm not out brunching because I know that, you know, it's always going to come around the opportunity to eat what I want. So flexibility definitely is the key. So Mel Brunch Queen is essentially, or in a way, like the therapeutic or the manifestation of a therapeutic success of your own personal journey. Absolutely. And I definitely am starting to integrate more psychology uh, into the page as well as brunch and food because the link between food and mental health is all related and I definitely want to increase, you know, awareness around that area. 
I totally agree. I'm so excited that you jumped on the podcast. We've been chatting about this for ages. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this for ages. So um, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I'm very grateful for brunch this morning, of course. Yeah, you are welcome. Brunch with the Mel Brunch Queen. <laughs> royalty, as we've heard. Yes. You are royalty. Yes, that's right. And yeah, I guess I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who does follow me and who is listening to this podcast today. Um, it does mean a lot and I hope that I can inspire and support and, and motivate as many people as positive as possible through our food and and brunch. <laughs> awesome. So I've got one question before we wrap up that yes. I want to ask, and that is, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Ooh, that's a good one. Definitely restriction leads to binge. This is so true and... So many people think restriction is the key, like, that's it, I'm going to start healthy tomorrow, I'm going to cut this out, I'm going to cut that out. But you're human and sooner or later when you have that taste of something, you're going to binge. So you're better off having something you feel like, having a little bit of it, not restricting. Otherwise, it just will lead to a binge and a vicious cycle. And if you do binge, the next day you wake up, resume normal eating. Do not restrict. That's the best health advice, I think. Perfect. Mm. I think that's a great way to end. So again, thanks so much. Uh, really appreciate you being on the podcast. And remember, for all of you out there, if you learned anything um, or you know anybody else that could benefit from anything that Steph has said, um, please take a screenshot of this and share it with a friend. Or if you're on Instagram, share it as your Instagram story and tag both Mel Brunch Queen, Steph, and me, Maddie Lansdowne, and we will be able to see who's watching, share it, give a shout out, and become part of the community. So it's been a great session today. I really appreciate you coming to the studio. Thank you so so much for having me, Matt, and love the podcast. Can't wait to hear the next episodes. Perfect. Thanks so much. All right. I hope you have a good week. All right. You too. Thank you. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.